This is a Triple J podcast. Okay, so I've only ever spoken to Dr. Carl briefly, I think on the phone last year. So when he said yes to jumping on the hookup, obviously I died. Um, and if for some cooked reason you don't know who Dr. Carl is, uh, you normally hear him on mornings with Lucy Smith every Thursday on Triple J. He's super famous on radio. He has been for years and years and years um, and now on TikTok as well for answering your science questions. But normally he answers stuff like, why is the sky blue? Or, you know, why do we close our eyes when we sneeze? But in this episode, he's going to answer a bunch of questions that, you know, he probably normally doesn't. It's kind of like Dr. Carl after dark. He answers all your questions about sex, body, love. We put a story up on our Instagram recently and yeah, you came through with some really, really great questions for him. Like, is tingling on the tops of your feet normal during orgasm? Um, Does pineapple juice really make a difference to the taste of your cum? Or if you skip your period on the pill, is it bad for you? And, you know, what's the science behind having a high libido or a low libido? So you'll hear him answer a bunch of those questions and more. Um, And you're also going to hear from Dr. Teresa Larkin, who we absolutely love. She's an associate professor of medical sciences at the Uni of Wollongong. She teaches anatomy and physiology. So she knows so much about reproductive Um, your reproductive system, about sperm, about penis and clit anatomy, the menstrual cycle, um, and yeah, just so much when it comes to our bodies and sex. So she is also the perfect person to jump on for this episode. All right, let's get into it. And the first one that we've got is from Dr. Jack. Hey, Dr. Carl and Dr. Teresa. Every time I go down on a vagina and give oral sex, my tongue, mouth, and lower face go numb with pins and needles. Usually goes away a few minutes after finishing, usually with some mouthwash, but it's not a very pleasant experience. It's definitely a me problem because it happens every time I give oral, regardless of who it's to, and I haven't heard of this happening with anyone else, so I don't know if this is a common thing or if it's just me. So my question is, am I having some allergic reaction to whatever fluid is down there? urine or something else. Thank you so much. Well, um, Dr. Jack, firstly, really, you should be going to a GP and then get bounced onto the appropriate specialist who may well be an immunologist, sexual health person. You've said that you experience this with multiple partners, so you should go down that pathway. But let's get some things out of the way that are probably not involved chemical sensitivity because you could be uh, allergic to or reacting to some chemicals in the other person, pH variations in the vagina, probably not so much extra nerve stimulation as a result of being excited, forget it. You know, there's always the um, physiological, psychological factors and the vasodilation and the individual individual preferences. Okay, let's get that out of the way. Now we cut to the chase. There's uh, at least one case in the medical literature of a man being allergic to his own sperm and had to be treated with antihistamines. And that gradually worked and he was then able to have sex without pain. There are cases of people being allergic to water, washing with water. My wife had a patient when, in, a while ago who had that. And there's also cases of people being allergic um, to sperm, men and women both. If you're allergic to both water and sperm, I guess you can't get clean, you can't get dirty. Boom, boom. Okay. So 
In this case, almost certainly it's an allergic reaction. Almost certainly immunologists will take you down a pathway to enlightenment and happiness, I think, maybe. But really, that's the person, not me. That's so interesting. We had actually a similar question, Dr. Carl, from Ash as well. I wonder if this is exactly um, what you're talking about. Hey, Dr. Carl and Dr. Teresa, it's Ash. Why is it when I give my boyfriend oral, his jizz makes my mouth numb? I've had a few partners do that to me. Why is that? I'm kind of thinking it is, but just gender swap. Same bunch of other stuff, uh, individual variances, pH balance, uh, chemicals. But I'm thinking that this is some sort of allergic thing that hasn't been explored very deeply because people get sensitive about sexual matters. After all, it was only in the last decade that the full extent of the clitoris, its full size, etc., was revealed through the patriarchy. What else have I got to say? I did read as well that there is something called seminal plasma hypersensitivity. So, you know, they've looked at that in terms of allergens that can be present in the semen because allergens often proteins and that there are proteins in the semen. So in this case, with the semen, it could be a case of that as well. That's interesting. We actually do have um, another question. I was going to ask it a little bit later, but it's pretty similar to what we're talking about. So I feel like we may as well ask it now about a nut allergy. Hey, Dr. Carl and Dr. Teresa, Arabella here. I've got a bit of a weird one. So I'm anaphylactic to nuts. It's not a contact allergy, but I've got to actually have some to go into anaphylactic shock. Basically, if I'm going to hook up with a guy, I've got to ask if he's had like peanut butter toast before he's gone out or something like that. I was wondering if a guy was going to give me oral and then eaten nuts, is that something that would still be transmittable and could I have an allergic reaction? Um, there's always the risk of cross-contamination. Let's pick the worst possible case. The person eats a mouthful of nuts, chews them up, but does not swallow them. They now have their mouth full of nuts. Then they kiss you and there's tongue-to-mouth contact. Okay, that's the worst possible case of cross-contamination. Then you go through the whole path of actually swallowing the nuts, then having saliva and then washing them away. And as you head more down that pathway, the amount, the mass of nut allergenic material that transfers into you gets less and less. So once again, this is, I'm feeling I'm saying the same thing over and over, go and see your GP, bounce onto an immunologist probably. It might not be an immunologist. It could be something else because I can't take a full medical history at this stage over the phone. Yeah, that's the thing. And it is an interesting one because they say that, you know, like the um, proteins, again, that cause the allergies, especially from peanuts or peanut butter, they can persist in the mouth for several hours after they've been eaten. So obviously through kissing, you can definitely transfer those. Um, and then because if these are in an oil nature, they actually can be absorbed through the skin and mucosa. So there's been cases of someone who has used a peanut oil and that, that set off a sensitization to a later peanut allergy. So like Dr. Carl said, this is definitely something for a, a, to check with a, with your medical doctor. But, you know, um, I read a single case of a male who was very allergic to peanuts who had received oral sex from another male who'd eaten peanut butter earlier. And that was a, he had an anaphylactic shock. So I think these things would be very rare, but not completely impossible. So yeah, it's something that would be definitely worth checking, but 
yeah, it's just crazy how sensitive some people can be to, to especially peanut allergens. Yeah, you always see the headline. I remember we did a, a <laughs> chat last year with someone who, similar thing, their boyfriend had eaten peanuts earlier that day and then mm. went down on her and everything just went sw- so swollen. Like it was, yeah, and but it was, it was like you said, very rare. Um, okay, we've got a question here from Dr. Kiara. I think this one might be for you, Dr. Teresa. Hey, mm-hmm. Dr. Carl and Dr. Teresa. It's Kiara here. I just had a quick question surrounding the pill and skipping periods. I currently take uh, Norman for birth control and skip my period quite often, uh, sometimes going three to four months without a period. My question was, is this bad for me and could there be any long-term effects that result from skipping my period on the pill? Good question, Dr. Kiara. Lots of people ask this question. So scientifically and medically, they have looked into this and it's totally fine to go two or three months skipping your period. But they do suggest that every two or three months you do come off the pill and have a period because what's happening when you're on the pill is that there's still the combination of estrogen and progesterone, just that overall those levels then are stable throughout that month. They're not fluctuating all over the place and that's how we prevent ovulation. But what happens is that there's enough of those hormones for you to have some buildup of the uterus lining. So not as much as what would occur without the pill, which is why often people who are on the pill have a lighter period, but there is still a buildup. So to still get rid of that and have that, you know, flush out of, of your uterus, it is recommended that every two or three months that you still do stop the pill and have those, you know, the sugar tablets or have the, the few days that you don't take it. And really, you know, some people call it a false period anyway, because it's not that you've, you're bleeding because you've ovulated, you're bleeding just because the hormone level in the pill has kept your uterus at a certain thickness. You stop that, so the hormones drop down and then, and then your lining comes off. In terms of long-term effects, you know, there's, there's not much on that. So as in there are some um, risks of certain cancers while you're on the pill, but then there are decreased risks of others. So, for example, there's a slight increasing risk of breast and cervical cancer when you're on the pill, but that stops after about 10 years of stopping it and it reverses, whereas there's lower risks of uterine and ovarian cancer. But overall, like being on the pill and then coming off it or, you know, being on it for a long period of time, but as long as you stop every two or three months, that's safe. Right now, we've got a question here from Dr. Mel. Hi, Dr. Carl and Dr. Teresa. Melanie here. I was just wondering why I have an overwhelming compulsion to intensely bite my partner hard on his arms or chest and back area when we are really affectionate with each other. Okay. I've heard th- I've heard of this happening. I kind of get it. I don't know if there's science behind it, but do you have any idea whatsoever, Dr. Carl, about what could be going on here? Why we, why we might want to bite the people we love? There is a relationship to the absolute desire to just bite babies or cover them with Vegemite and lick them or whatever. But, you know, you just want to really cuddle babies and sort of squeeze them hard. And you do not want to hurt the baby. But you've got so much love to give, you just can't give it without sort of squeezing. So in the case of humans uh, loving each other very much in a special way, when you do the biting thing, that enhances stimulation of nerve endings and that enhances the sensory experience. It's also got a psychological thing of, I won't bite anybody except you, and it's happening now. And then there's also another background 
of the power dynamic because people like to play with that. Like if you're really a nom- normally a very dominant person, sometimes in uh, affectionate you like to play submissive or vice versa. And, of course, there's the old variety and novelty, but this is more of a long-term thing. So I'd say it'd be a mixture of your upbringing plus the fact that you want to enhance the experience that you're having. And if it seems to do that and you're not causing any pain, um, what's the problem? Exactly. I guess it's hopefully not causing any pain. It's so hard to bite and not go, you know, like do the whole chomp down. with your hands. Use, yeah, yes, use I your know. hands. I'm doing it now. Um, <laughs> um, okay, we had a text come through where someone here says, when I climax, I get goosebumps on my left thigh, but nowhere else. Uh, Dr. Teresa, this is kind of similar to another text that we got around. They get a tingling sensation in their feet um, when they orgasm. Do you know what's going on here with the goosebumps and the tingling? Oh, it's so interesting. Like orgasm and sex, it's so complex. You know, so many nerves are involved. So yeah, this is all to do with arousal, which is that stage, you know, it sort of goes desire, arousal, orgasm and resolution in the sexual, you know, um, pathway of a human. And so in arousal, there's increased blood pressure, increased heart rate, increased breathing rate. So our breathing rate can double and then increase even beyond that during orgasm. But that hyperventilation can cause some numbness, dizziness and tingling in the arms and legs, you know, breathing extra hard. But also you're getting this increased blood flow and that includes to the muscles in the legs because a part of sex is like exercise and that's stimulating that sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight or flight response, but in a super healthy way. So it's really healthy to have our fight or flight response stimulated in a safe setting and then have that calm period afterwards. It's like priming us and keeping us in shape. So in that sort of sympathetic fight or flight, you know, we can get increased blood flow to our genitalia, obviously is a part of the sex response, but also to our legs. And a part of arousal and orgasm does include, you know, some muscle spasms, flushing of the skin, increased muscle tension, and all those, in, you know, really sensitive nerve endings. So some people can even have hypersensitivity of certain areas and that can feel like um, goosebumps or it can feel like tingling and it's interesting that the goosebumps were on their thigh because that is one of the erogenous zones you know when people have done mapping of the erogenous zones you know genitalia breasts and nipples are a big one in females but then and buttocks in males but inner thighs and which is the you know where they're saying is also part of those erogenous zones. I didn't know that. (laughs) Just the nervousness, you know, you've just got that heightened nerve sensitivity. Yeah, there's also another factor. Mm -hmm. We don't know whether it was the inside or the outside of the thigh. If it was the outer aspect of the thigh, it could well be the distribution of the lateral cutaneous Mm -hmm. nerve, Mm -hmm. which can be damaged awfully easily. So if you're having this sympathetic nervous response to goosebumps, okay, let's just dive back a bit. With regard to sexual orgasm in males, the way I remember it is P and S, point and shoot. Point is the parasympathetic uh, nervous system, which gives mm-hmm. the erection. And S is for the sympathetic nervous system, which gives the ejaculation. You need both of them going together. Now, it turns out that if you have some damage, and this happens rarely, to your sympathetic nervous system, it's normally down one side of the body or the other. And those people, when they go into water and stay there for a while, do not wrinkle on that side of their body where the paras- where the sympathetic nervous system doesn't work. It's a sympathetic nervous system causing the decrease in blood flow that causes the skin to wrinkle up on your hands and your feet, 
when you've been in the water for a while due to the water coming in through the sweat glands and diluting your local saltiness and setting off that sympathetic nervous system. So there's two things at least going on. It could be mm-hmm. parasympathetic nervous system and it could be the uh, damage to the lateral cutaneous nerve, which is awfully easy to damage. Mm. And if there's so many, you know, there's those real, the orgasm is a real spinal reflex. Mm. And so, yeah, those sacral nerves in that area, they have, you know, some um, sensory distribution in the legs and things like that. So it's all involved with that real, you know, nerve reflex that involves orgasm. It's so complex as to why that could be happening. Um, Something that maybe isn't too complex, but we get asked a lot on the hookup, a question here from Dr. Jono. Hey doctors, it's Jono. I'm curious to know if there's any science behind drinking pineapple juice and it making your cum taste better. It's something that you hear a lot and I've always wondered if it's fact or fiction. Semen is alkaline, so that means it's got a higher, you know, pH. And that's to balance out the more acidic environment of the vagina. And obviously semen is, you know, the transporting of sperm. So sperm want to stay healthy and stay stay viable. So because of that, anything, so because it being slightly alkaline, it's got a slightly or naturally bitter taste, it would be said. So anything that's acidic and things that are high in fructose or glucose or vitamin C, anything like that is can help to balance it out. And I guess we should start by saying that, you know, things that we eat do affect our bodily fluids and, you know, they affect the way that we sweat and smell and they can be, they can turn up into semen as well. All you have to do yeah. is eat some beetroot <laughs> and go to the toilet and you'll know. Exactly. <laughs> or asparagus and, you know, people can smell asparagus in their pee, but things, other things like celery that's high in vitamin C, even they say cinnamon, peppermint, parsley, kiwi fruits, berries, all these things can actually slightly change the, um, the taste of semen, but I guess it's important to note that that semen and the fluids, they're being made, you know, constantly and it's not just at that moment. So you can't just drink some pineapple juice and think that in 20 minutes you're going to have changed the the taste of your semen. (laughs) We have a question from, actually really interesting question. I like this one from Dr. Jo. Hey, Dr. Carl and Dr. Teresa, Jo here. I'm just wondering if there's such a thing as sexual synesthesia. Like some sex acts might be like seeing inside an old Victorian house, but then others are like jewel-toned shapes. Is this a thing or could it just be like dissociating during sex? So um, we all have synesthesia. Yeah. So we apparently have only the five main senses, but then we've got a whole bunch and everybody has the crossover to some degree or another. So Franz Liszt, the famous composer and pianist, he wrote that when he was composing music, He'd tickle his fingers on the piano keys and then see bubbles in front of him. And he'd ignore the sounds. And he'd just move his fingers around differently until the bubbles looked really pretty. And so people can have very extreme synesthesia. I get synesthesia when I'm just the last thing at night, I'm about to drop off. And then suddenly a car door slams in a distance. And in addition to hearing it with my ears, a ripple of sensation will run from my head to my feet. And many people will, in this dream zone, just dropping off, experience synesthesia. It is relatively common to have a little bit of mild synesthesia, but full-on synesthesia, where somebody talks to you and then you feel ripples on your flesh, or or you see bubbles in the air, or when somebody says numbers, they come with colours. That's a whole thing. There's a a book called Wednesday is a Blue Day. Born on a Wednesday, a Blue Day. 
And this person has got it very um, to, to a great degree. So synesthesia exists, but it's poorly understood. Sexual synesthesia is even less better understood. It's not really well understood. It is real. It's intriguing. And it's documented. But it's not well studied because people, once again, are embarrassed about it. Yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah. Like most things when it comes to um, sex and science, isn't it? Um, we've got a caller here. Meg from Canberra is on the line. Meg, what's your question for Dr. Kyle and Dr. Teresa? Why do some people feel aroused more often, like in layman's terms, why do people feel more horny more often? Is it due to having some people more having chemical reactions happening or more hormones? Like I was just wondering why people feel it more than others. Ah, here you have to go to the great god of experience, Frank Zappa, who said that your main sexual organ is your brain, right? So if there's something about that other person that triggers something in you, which can be the fetish of their black shoes or their rainbow pants or whatever, uh, it is that one-to-one experience that's happening in your brain and then everything else just goes along for the ride. So then you try to have people saying, oh, well, it's due to the dopamine. Okay, there's... When I started off uh, as a drug crazed hippie, there was one uh, brain hormone, acetylene, acetylcholine. Then by the time I was starting medicine, there were about 20. By the time I finished medicine, there were several hundred. Now there's thousands, mm-hmm. right? And the one that everybody knows is dopamine or serotonin. And I'll say, oh, the reason this is happening is, and I'll say confidently, because the dopamine, it is way more complicated than that. But there is something doing it. And if it's happening to you, Hooray. Good luck, Dr. Teresa. Yeah, I love that there was only the few hormones and now there's so many. It's so about, like you say, made like chemical reactions and hormones. So exactly like the dopamine that Carl mentioned, that's our hormone of reward and motivation that can that can drive us to seek out sex and seek out romance. We've also got oxytocin. That's the hormone of bonding and attachments. But probably the main ones are the sex hormones. So that's estrogen and progesterone from the um, ovaries and testosterone from the testes. And they can really drive, you know, sex uh, desire and, um, you know, a libido in us. Other thing is that that's balanced as well with the stress hormones. So the more that someone is stressed and the more cortisol they have, usually the lower arousal and the lower libido because there's always been a balance in evolution between stress and reproduction because, if our body's too stressed, then it says, well, you're not capable at the moment of reproducing, so your desire goes down. So definitely all about hormones, you know, increased for females, estrogen's a bit more pro, you know, increased libido and progesterone's a bit more of a lowered one. Also, shout out to an episode we did recently with Dr. Teresa on the sleigh Mm -hmm. and flop era of your period and your cycle because it is very interesting and Teresa spoke to length about like how certain moments of your cycle you are way hornier than others. (laughs) So um, definitely recommend giving that a listen. Um, Meg, thank you so much for asking your question. No worries. Thanks, guys. Good night. Thank you, Dr. Meg. Okay, we have a question now, another caller, Dr. Dylan from Geelong. Dr. Dylan, what is your question? My question is I have a, uh, I get a very intense um, migraine after ejaculation, but only via sex. And I was told that it was called an um, orgasm migraine. I'm not sure if that's true or not. I just want to hear your thoughts. So, yeah, as Dr. Carl was saying before with that PNS, point and shoot, parasympathetic and sympathetic. So 
the sympathetic response is heightened when you ejaculate and and that's really our stress response and that can cause constricting of some of the blood vessels because in that moment it's like we need to conserve our our blood for the really important things and actually a high sympathetic and stress can cause a migraine or a headache in people so yeah that's definitely something so an orgasm migraine most likely to do with the really and also because you've had that high blood pressure and a high heart rate and a high breathing rate you know all of those things can add plus when the blood vessels are constricted that can that can affect the blood pressure especially in the in the head and around the brain and also the uh, medical people love to classify stuff so they've classified the orgasmic headaches into two types there's the pre-orgasmic which happens before orgasm and typically builds up in intensity as you get more sexually aroused. And then there's secondly, the explosive orgasmic headache, which happens suddenly and intensely at the moment of orgasm. What's the situation with you, Dr. Dillon? Uh, That is suddenly and intensely. Right. So either way, now they've gone to the trouble of classifying it, we don't know what's going on. We don't fully understand what's going on. Um, I I have a kind of a migraine, migraine myself, which involves flashing lights, I see in my field of view, which uh, start off as a little tiny dot in my uh, center of vision, then over a period of 15 minutes, build into a big sideways V with flashing sides, same in each side, get bigger and bigger, fall off my field of view. It's called a scintillating, scotomic, uh, amigrinous migraine. So scintillating means I'm getting flashing lights. Uh, Scotomatous means blocking my field of view vision. Um, a means not, so amigrinous means it's not a migraine, and migraine they call it a migraine. So the bottom line is the same with you. It happens, it's real, we don't fully understand the significance of it. Document it and follow it with time. So whenever I have any of these little uh, things happen to me, I'll put them in my diary, uh, and I've got an electronic diary, so keep a diary of it, and maybe it'll mean something 20 years down the line, maybe it'll be completely useless, then you can pass it on to your family or children and say, look at what happened to me. Maybe it's not suitable. I don't know. Yeah, probably not suitable, but thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe Into not for it. the kids. <laughs> but remember that the difference between science and screwing around is write it down. So maybe you can encrypt it when you write it down. We've got one right now from Dr. Loretta. Hey, Dr. Carl and Dr. Teresa. Loretta here. Um, my questions around um, some period-like pain during my cycle worse in my luteal phase at around day 21, and I'm just wondering if it's normal to have some crampy period-like pain throughout the cycle but not during your period, um, and if I should get this checked out by a gynecologist. So it's it's not normal, you know, to feel cramps all month, all through the month and on, you know, every day. It's interesting because when Loretta then mentioned that it was luteal phase and around day 21, it could just be lined up with where there's another, like the second sort of peak of estrogen in that second part of the month because second because estrogen is more of a cramping hormone. It's not a usual thing. And I mean, if someone is feeling uh, pelvic pain throughout the month, then that's definitely not normal. And so someone who can, who does have chronic pelvic pain for more than six months, and it's not just at the time of the periods, that literally is classified as chronic pelvic pain. And there are causes that may have nothing to do with the reproductive tract. So there can be vascular causes and things like that. Obviously, endometriosis can cause ongoing pain, especially if it's that the the uterine tissue has lodged because it's where uterine tissue lodges outside the tract. You know, if that's lodged on 
the digestive tract or the wall of the abdomen, then that can be triggered on different days of the month because changes in pressure in the bowel or in gases can cause changes in the whole abdominal cavity. So, yeah, it's an unusual one just to have on the day 21, um, but normally, you know, the normal is just to have the period pain around the time of the periods because you've got the contraction, the prostaglandins and things like that. The uh, crampy pain around day 21 is often called middle schmerz. Oh, yeah. M-I-T-T-E-L-S-C-H-M-E-R-Z or mid-cycle pain. And it talks about that mild to moderate. I mean, that's a relative term, abdominal pain. And it's poorly understood, but it's thought to result from the mechanical stretching or irritation of the tissue of the ovary or the surrounding structures as the ovary releases an egg. But this is going back from memory. And that pain that you mentioned, that's normally, yeah, right at ovulation on so which in a normal cycle would be day 14. But if Loretta's having a longer cycle, but yeah, because it's that middle pain with the ovulate when ovulation bursts the follicle out. Totally, totally. Um, okay, the next question from Dr. Shanae is actually one that I really want you to answer because I've been having chronic UTIs for about six months. Hi, Dr. Carl and Dr. Teresa. It's Shanae here. Um, my question for you is, can your body reject a certain partner as if, you know, hypothetically, um, say you were dating someone for six months or 12 months or something like that, but throughout that whole relationship, um, you experienced frequent UTIs, but as soon as you guys stopped dating, you didn't have a UTI, UTI ever and you never had one prior to dating them. So is it a possibility that your body knows that someone's not good for you? <laughs> it is a good question, isn't it? I need it answered. <laughs> and I think, look, if there's a sign and you take it on that's a sign, then it's probably a sign. But, you know, and all that we could think with that is, you know, there are things where that says that you're attracted to people who have a difference in their immune system and, you know, they have looked at that in terms of specifics of the immune system. With a UTI, obviously the main thing that causes that is bacteria but for sure, there may just be, you know, some combinations where that person, if this is penis in vagina sex, you know, if that person's penis the, or the semen or something about their skin causes an increased susceptibility to, you know, um, thrush and a fungal infection or a UTI via a bacterial infection. I, I do think that there probably are cases where physically, you know, it's just not the perfect match. What do you think, Dee, since you were you were interested in that one? I don't want to hear <laughs> that. I don't want to hear that. <laughs> but I think that you can, you know, you can address it. You know, mm. you've got it. If that's what you want, if you want that to be the relationship, then you can definitely address that. You know, you can look at ways to prevent or to treat UTI or thrush. You know, I think that anyone can interpret how they want for for something like that because at the end of the day it's not that someone can specifically you know give you a UTI or say that this is a reason you shouldn't be together it's beyond the science hour this one This is one that's come through on the text line. Hugo says, as I get older, my cum is less watery and I drink as much water as before. So what affects cum consistency? No idea. Dr. Teresa. Yeah, so I was thinking with that one. So the most of semen is coming from the seminal vesicles, about 70% and about 20% from the prostate. Only about 10% is actual sperm and that fluid. But what happens is that as a person ages, their sperm volume, volume will decrease. So that might make it appear thicker. 
Um, so I, you know, the main things that get measured are the movement of the sperm and whether they're still active enough and, and mobile enough and the volume of different um, components. But I haven't seen anything looking at the thickness of it. But it might be that, that, you know, as you get older and the sperm volume decreases, it might appear to be thicker. Interesting. Okay, last one. This has got this is another allergy question from Dr. Haley. Hey Dr. Carl and Dr. Teresa. I was just wondering why I'm allergic to latex band-aids and gloves, but when I use latex condoms, I don't have a reaction. What, what do you mean by late, uh, allergic? So I know you're not there. Haley. <laughs> Dr. Haley's not there. On a recorded thing. Yeah. But I mean, is allergic that you have the full-on anaphylactic reaction and you'll have everything in your mouth swelling up and you'll try to die unless you get adrenaline or is it just sort of mildly tingling or you just get annoyed by it so i don't have a good answer sorry i failed you <gasps> dr carl don't say that you would never fail us that I is have, an answer is that's still an answer i don't know is a good answer it means exactly. that we need to go looking further yeah, but maybe the uh, we need a biochemist because the latex in condoms may have a different extra, external consistency or biochemical mm-hmm. makeup from the latex in gloves because there is more of a protective thing against, for example, bleach, whereas they're not looking for that when they're making a latex condom. See? Mm-hmm. So I don't know enough about biochemistry. Bummer. How much could you just listen to Dr. Carl and Dr. Teresa forever? I learned so much from this episode, honestly, like the stuff about biting. So interesting. And, you know, the classic stuff, even the pineapple juice. Like it was just awesome to get a bit more clarity around how it actually affects your sperm. Um, Of course, if you're listening and it inspired a question um, that you want us to answer, don't worry. You can still hit us up on our Instagram at Triple J The Hookup. It might not be Dr. Carl, but we'll get someone to investigate it for you because that's what we do here. All right, we'll catch you next time. Bye.